Remember, you can stay up to date on the latest news with the Irish Independent WhatsApp channel. On this week's Big Tech Show, you might not think it could happen to you, but our guest this week explains how a significant number of Irish people may be falling victim to romance frauds online. Victims can feel a misplaced sense of shame. People can blame themselves. They feel embarrassed. And so they don't want to tell family, friends. They don't want to report it to the police. In some cases, of course, the victims are already in relationships. They're married. They have an extra reason to keep that quiet. The Big Tech Show, available on all podcast platforms. Platforms. They were O'Driscoll, Morgan, extra man, it's Fitzgerald, oh Fitzgerald is cutting back inside! Leicester have another! Darcy O'Driscoll oh. through the legs, Rob Carney, out to Fitzgerald again, step and score! Well, the Six Nations is over, and although Ireland didn't reach its destination by winning a Grand Slam or a Six Nations title, a triple crown and some handsome bonus point victories against some big rivals has to be seen, I suppose, in a pretty positive light. Will Slattery here. Welcome to the Left Wing Podcast. Keen Tracy is on with me this week to do a deep dive into all things Six Nations. Keen, how are you? All good, Will. How are you? Very good, thanks. So, I suppose four wins out of five and taking it away scalp was probably the bare minimum positive outcome in terms of results people would have been expecting at the start of the tournament now that we've reached the end and you know we've gotten those big wins at home and then going to England and getting that away scalp and you know going close against France who did win the Grand Slam how would you rate this Six Nations on a scale of one to ten a nice easy kind of obvious way of kind of marking it to, to kick things off it's funny you should you should ask it that way actually because I've been trying to think to myself over the last few days what mark I would give it out of ten um, I think I've settled on an eight, definitely no higher. I was kind of hovering around a seven, I think, for a bit, but maybe that's a little bit too low. Um, yeah, like it, it was strange the, it, it, being at the match on Saturday. Like there was kind of a, a muted atmosphere on almost expectation that Ireland were going to beat Scotland well. And when they went 14 0 up, I thought they were going to absolutely pump them and it didn't really work out like that, um, which is a bit of a disappointment because kind of indicative of maybe Ireland's tournament, I think they left a lot of points out there. And I think you could say the same, definitely against England, definitely against Italy. Um, they played well against Wales and obviously France was was a tough game. So, like, I mean, getting a triple crown was was good. I know some people would kind of turn their nose up at it, but you know, the scenes at full time. Centenary quad, that's the real one. That was the real prize on offer at the weekend. I remember actually a couple of seasons ago, I wrote a piece um, on all the obscure trophies that are in the Six Nations and it's bizarre, but to be fair, the Triple Crown does have some bit of prestige, but it, it the, the scenes of full time were great. It kind of reminded you what you missed during the pandemic. And, you know, Johnny Sexton and Andy Farrell, neither of them were like jump, jumping through hoops afterwards saying, oh, we're great. We've won a triple crown. And I think that's been probably indicative of the the overall mood in the Arden camp. I think I think they would probably rate themselves as like a, a very good campaign, but not outstanding. Like, what, what would you give it? Like, I, I said eight out of ten. Would you agree? Would you go higher or lower? Yeah, I, I think I'd probably do the kind of the the carriage way and go seven and a half and dock them the half mark maybe because England had 14 men. Because going into the tournament, you know, we did our predictions in that jury in the Irish Independent where everyone, you know, gives... I think Rudd was the only person who tipped Ireland to win the Six Nations. I think everyone else had France won Ireland too. 
So I, I was I was in my own head saying, you know, if they go to France and put up a good show and maybe lose narrowly and win in Twickenham, that would be progress results-wise anyway. And then let's see how they perform across those games. That's why it's funny. We've reached that results marker that maybe I had in my own head would be good. But I'm kind of thinking the performance is like, I think the big question I had going into it was could the, the kind of the style of play in November, would it translate seamlessly into Six Nations or would we reach day one and it would like, like a mirage would have disappeared and we'd be back to maybe the way it was for the first 10 or 12 games of Andy Fraser. So from that point of view, it was a positive, but they never really got more than a 60 minute performance. I'd say across the campaign, Wales was probably the closest ironically, because even Rudd's kind of a piece in Monday's paper kind of tying up the tournament said, you know, they maybe started with a full tank in November and they were running on empty by the end of it. Cause they, they even, you know, England, Scotland, Italy, France, they probably only played for 40, you know, 60 maybe at most but I think Wales was probably the closest they got ironically in game one to, to doing that complete performance yeah I would I would agree with that I don't think they were running on empty but I I know no, what I run means and I, I don't know what, what you mean but yeah like the Wales game was 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 very good but we'll get on and talk more about kind of the other teams in a, in a few minutes I'm sure but even in that Wales performance, there's no way that that was anywhere near the, the performance that they got against the All Blacks in November. And that is now become the benchmark for this team. So as well as they played, they, I would say, came absolutely nowhere near hit, hitting those kind of markers, which to have finished second in the Six Nations, to have won the Triple Crown, to have scored the most tries, to have conceded the, the fewest, um, is massively impressive. You know, so... Why, you do you think, at- why do you think they didn't hit you know that height now to be fair like it's it's unrealistic to say you're going to play like that every week because we were talking after that game as if it was one of the best performances from an Irish team ever but even in terms of the it was probably a minute one to minute 80 performance at least you know I know they butchered a few chances in that first half against New Zealand but they they really did play probably on top you know of their game for the most part why do you think they didn't hit that heights over the course of the five games again I've been thinking about this a lot and my opinion of it is that maybe some people aren't giving enough credence to the fact that this is still very much a new style of play that the Ireland team are playing. Now, I know the Leinster players play a similar type of, you know, expansive approach there, but obviously stepping up to international rugby is different. So when when you're playing more, when like players are encouraged to offload the ball more to get to wit quicker, I think you are going to see more mistakes. I think that's just inevitable. I think it will take time for players to feel 100% comfortable in what is being asked of them. And to be fair, I think they are comfortable. And you know what? There was a lot of talk. I go to the England game in particular. There was a lot of talk there of, you know, oh, like with against 14 men, they should have taken them through more phases. But like when I kind of watched the back, like the like Tyg Byrne offloaded to Ian Henderson, it didn't go to hand. Tyg Furlong offloaded to Bundyaki, it didn't go to hand in the 22. And I was kind of thinking, if we want Ireland to play with this more expansive approach, we can't all of a sudden turn around and then say, oh, they should have went through more phases because that was one of the criticisms of towards the end of the Joe Schmidt era. No, it, it, like that's a fair point. Like, because, you know, some people do say, oh, you can't have it both ways. But like the way I look at it, like... <laughs> Can, can like so those passes? Some of them were not on, you know. Like, is there not like a is it like they're all smart rugby players? Like, an offload is on or it's not on. Like, some of those weren't really on at all. Like, can you not have it both ways in the sense where you offload the ball, but like not offload ones that are very very low percentage? Like, is there not some sort of tilting the odds in your favor? Or maybe I am trying to be. I want to be like France. 
with the offloading, but I also want to be like Joe Schmidt's Ireland and be mm. ultra, ultra accurate. Like maybe you can't marry those two things. Well, that's the challenge, isn't it? And like yeah. me saying that, like I'm absolutely not having a go at like the end of Joe Schmidt's ear. Like that was what made Ireland so brilliant that they were so clinical and so accurate, but it was in a different kind of way. So I think the challenge for this Ireland team is like you hit the nail on the head there is to get the balance between to- to- two styles. But we're talking about like that is perfection really when you're talking about it isn't it like that is a 10 out of 10 performance and how often is that realistically going to happen yeah because the interesting thing is like you know a lot of people have been pointing to the air account the handling air account across the six nations is probably the, the, the biggest blemish but you have to remember that new zealand performance that first half like they butchered a lot of chances in that game as well you know like new zealand, ireland could have been out of, they were losing at half time i think by five points they could have been out of sight at half time had the ball stuck a little more I remember there was an offload, maybe Conan and Gibson Park were involved in in the corner and there was a few other little, you know, errors like that. So even in a performance that's being held as so good, like there was an error count. So maybe, and I saw someone else make the point, and even at the weekend for France against England, like France had a couple of chances to put them away in that first half, like Fiku when he was going through that gap and he he dropped the ball. Like they, they do, just, you know, similarly have those little errors. You know, maybe it's just not possible to play that style of game and be like, you know, 99% accurate in your handling. Maybe that's just not something that is possible in rugby. I don't know. Yeah, like we we speak so often about rugby moves and trends and that does become a little bit of cliche at times, but it genuinely does. And right now, attacking rugby, fast rugby is in vogue. Like just look at France have won a Grand Slam. And now to be fair, they do have a serious edge to their pack as well. So they're probably marrying the two styles. Obviously, they are marrying it better than Ireland at the moment. But this is the way rugby is going at the moment. Like from... Like certainly from a, like a work point of view, covering these games, it's far more attractive to watch. It's far more exciting when when you are getting a few more mistakes. That means more chances are going to appear because maybe defenses are that little bit looser. But on the Scotland game last weekend, I was like, I think one of the most encouraging aspects I think of that was the fact that Ireland kind of went back to the Joe Schmidt playbook a little bit, um, in the sense that the pack were just all over Scotland, absolutely all over them. And I think they looked at Scotland beforehand and went, yeah, like we're just going to, we're going to have them up front and we're going to like, you know, we can actually get on top of the pack here. Whereas I think they were guilty too often in the past of, of basically that was the way they played and, you know, they weren't really able to do it any other way. And that's why they came up short, I think against uh, the more, the bigger, the more physical teams. But I thought it was encouraging. Like their mall was really effective. They like Scotland really had no answer to to what Ireland were producing up front. Now we can get on and talk about the scrum in a bit, but I was pleased to see that Ireland still have that in their locker and they can still put away teams like Scotland who they should be putting away and they should be getting on top of. So we've seen their attacking shape and how slick and how fluid it is, but like I, I agree with you what she said at the start. I think the Wales game said more about Wales than it did about Ireland. Um, if we're being honest, like you look at obviously them losing to Italy last weekend, and I think I still think the attack is a work in progress. The shape looks great, but the the accuracy still there's like there's still a few balls going to ground, and this is what we're talking about trying to get trying to get married the two styles. But there were a couple I thought at the weekend were just really sloppy and frustrating, and that can kill momentum in the game as well. And if they if Scotland had a bit more about them, they could have made it tougher than what it was. So yeah, but I thought if, if kind of your big criticism is at the end of the day, like you know handling errors, I feel like that's eminently fixable. You know that's something that like you know, a little softer on the pass, a little, you know, more depth in the running line. Like, you'd much rather be there than where we were 
midway through 2020 where you know we my cat was wanted to be you know a lot most people wanted my cat gone now we as you say Ireland have the best attack shape probably in the in the whole tournament you know even from even the French like they're they're more like offloading and game breakers like even the, the Irish shape probably mm. is even better than theirs absolutely and I you know is um a lot of people from outside of Ireland are saying that as well so you know, you kind of get a bit wary of, you know, talking up Ireland's attack that much and they finish second. But it's been interesting to hear people from other countries, but basically talking the same experts and stuff. So um, it is re- it is really impressive, the attacking shape. And like, to be honest, I love being at the games and watching them getting into that shape now because it's you, you can clearly see it. It's so identifiable and you can see how effective it is with that three man pod because it just gives them so, so many options. I just wonder, you know, Ireland have been playing that now for a while and it's another year in so teams are going to be way more kind of wary of what exactly they're doing like I mean the next time they play is going to be in New Zealand and they have to keep evolving it what they've been doing now is not going to be good enough certainly going to New Zealand and going on to next year with with everything that's to come and you know to go back to your your first question about what you'd rated out of 10 and I said eight and it was funny, like most of kind of the journalists stayed back in the, the press room after the game to to watch the France-England game, obviously, because Ireland could have could have ended up with the title. And there was kind of, I would say, the shared view amongst most of us there was that like, God, if Ireland end up winning the Six Nations title here, it would be strange. Like, because it, it didn't feel like as well as Ireland played and as well as they did, I don't know if you agree, it didn't feel like kind of a Six Nations winning campaign from an Irish point of view. Now, I don't know if that's if that's a fair comment. Would you would you agree or? Yeah, it's a hard, it's, it's a funny one. Like, you know, obviously they, they swept their three home games so comprehensively. Then England getting the red card did put a color on that result, no matter how impressive it ultimately was. Yeah, you look back to the kind of the Joe Schmidt victories like they, they didn't win the Grand Slam in the first two you know, one of them, they were reliant on other results on, the, on that great Super Saturday. The first time, you know, they put they got a head of steam up against Wales and Scotland and then lost to England, you know, and then beat a poor enough French team away. Like, did, did those feel, you know, did they feel like really great tournaments when the team played really well across the whole thing? I'm not sure if they did either. I, I, I take your point. It would have felt like Ireland maybe backed into a Six Nations had France slipped up, given they were at home, given the expectation you know, the stars to the coaching staff, there was loads of features during the week about how it was basically their moment. It would have felt like Ireland had maybe backed into it. But then you do look at the statistics, you say, score the most tries, score the most points, concede the least tries, the least points. They, <laughs> like, got, you four, know, they got all, all four of their victories were four bonus point victories as well. Now, as you said, like obviously England were down to 14, Italy were down to 13, but they still bounced back from Paris. And if you think about how well they played in the second half in Paris. So if we take it from halftime in Paris till the end, like that was a serious response from them. So maybe maybe I am being a little bit harsh, but the reason I'm probably, and like I said, I wasn't the only one kind of thinking this way is that I just feel like this Ireland team hold themselves to pretty high standards and that's no bad thing. And maybe you're kind of like, you know, burned from the last the last kind of like world cup cycle because ireland won the grand slam obviously and at, at this stage and everyone thought you know this is going to be it world cup semi-final here we come and i think winning a triple crown and finishing second in the six nations just keeps everyone you know expectations in check no one is getting ahead of themselves and that's i would say internally and externally uh within the squad so um yeah, like I, I, I think like it was far, far more positives than negatives. But 
I think there were a couple of negatives as well that certainly yeah, well, what, what are some of the negatives then? What are some of the, you know, obviously we mentioned the handling is a big one, like front row depth and maybe tied five depth generally is probably one top of everyone's list given the injuries suffered to Porter and Kelleher who, who came in and, and the struggles in the scrum. Is that kind of the main one jumping out at you? Is there anything else that you're kind of thinking now? Because, you know, as I mentioned, Rudd's piece, like he kind of, he was he was probably taking an even more critical view and said there was a couple of areas where Ireland were very vulnerable or, or some fundamentals that they really needed to work on. Yeah, like and I think you know, I, I, like if we're saying this, you can imagine what the coaching staff are, are like. They're going to be ultra critical of it as well, and that's just what I, I guess high performance sport is about. Yeah, like I, I agree with you. I think the accuracy thing is something that's definitely fixable. Um, I suppose the. The, not not the trouble is what they're going to New Zealand next and trying to fix your accuracy down there is going to be no easy task. But like no better I place. Wait for that. I cannot yeah, wait for that. It'll be incredible. But like no better place to ensure because you won't get away with being sloppy down there or you will be on the end of an absolute hammering. So um I yeah, I wouldn't be too worried about the accuracy thing. And I think the more time the players have within the system, I think I think they'll get it right because we've seen how effective they are when they do click. I think the scrum is is a, is is a serious worry if if we're being honest. Um, I think the discipline hasn't been as great as it has been, but I think that feeds into the scrum because they've conceded they conceded so many scrum penalties. So, like if you take it that you should really be conceding no more, you should, single digit penalties is really what they say in international rugby in Ireland. We're well above that in a lot of the games. So, my fear is that the scrum other teams are now going to look at and like it's been funny to listen to Andy Farrell and the players have been doing their best to say oh like we know we have a world class scrum and you know they were eager to kind of put across that the the messaging after the England game was that oh no a couple of those penalties should have went um, our way which is the feedback they got from World Rugby which as you know if, if for anyone who listened to your brilliant podcast with Alex Corbusiero you would have kind of known that that was probably coming. So Ireland are definitely, I'd say, cautious that they're potentially going to get a name for being, you know, a dodgy scrummaging team. And is, like, it, is, it, is it kind of like a scrummaging issue or is it like a, is it a front row depth issue? Like if Porter and Kelleher are in that front row, like does that happen, do you think? Like I, I don't associate a front row of those three lads together as being a weak scrummaging front row. Like Furlong's, you know, being ping in that Twickenham game, I don't really remember that many times in his career where he's given away too many scrum penalties. So is it a question of maybe once the first choice guys are gone that it's the issue or do you think it's deeper than that and then is a scrummaging issue generally? No, I think definitely when the when the, when you go below the, the first choice uh, front row, absolutely. But I mean, you look at now like they were missing two of the two of the three front row. If that happens at a World Cup, um, and I hate the way we look at everything through the prism of the World Cup, but it's kind of it's kind of natural. Let's say if that happens in New Zealand, like I would have serious serious concerns. Um, and like it, it, I'm always wary of of saying that because when you're talking about Andrew Porter, who is well on his way to becoming one of the best loose heads. I'm not saying he's the best loose head in the world, but he's definitely up there with the best. Tyke Furlong is the best tight head in the world. So naturally, when you go below them, there's going to be a drop off. But my fear is that the drop off is significant. Um, I think we've seen 
how much of a, re- a reliance there is on the two props because in Paris they played 73 minutes and you look at France I, I think nearly in every game I could be wrong but the front row came off between the 50th and the 55th minute regardless of how well or how like not well they were playing because they're so confident in the lads who are coming off the bench we know obviously South Africa do it to, to brilliant effect as well so I just think the, the depth chart has been really shown up um, and I would have concerns that if Ireland, like it, it's not realistic to expect, and I'm going to go to the World Cup again, it's not realistic ex- to expect the two props to play like well over an hour, like back-to-back games at the World Cup. And when you look at like the way the group is is shaping up, like, like you look at Scotland caused Ireland problems like at the scrum last weekend, they're obviously going to be in the pool. We know how strong... South Africa, if Tonga are in there, like, you know, I suppose we'll have to wait and see what kind of squad that they're shaping up. But it's not realistic to expect your props to be playing that long and also to be so influential in open play in the attack, which Porter and Furlong are so important, as we've talked about in that pot of three. So when you're looking at the best teams in the world rolling their, their front row off after 50, 55 minutes and being ultra confident in the lads who are coming in, like that's the winning or that's the making I think of like championship winning teams. And I would worry that Ireland just don't have that and they're not going to have that because like Andy Farrell is picking from the props that are available. It's not like, it's not like he's ignoring someone really, really obvious. Um, and I think that is a concern to, to go along with, like I'm saying that yeah. there's a bit, there's a bit of a fear that they could become a team where referees are looking out for them and opposition coaches are going, okay, like we can get after them here or there. I don't know. Like, do, do you agree with the sort of the, well, just on, on the, on the kind of the scrum depth issue, like and you're saying the options that are there. Yeah. Like you look around at guys like, you know, Eric O'Sullivan, Ed Byrne, like you're looking at someone, can one of these guys make a step up, you know, you'd almost love if there was another year between now and the World Cup. Someone like Jack Boyle, uh, who's been mm. so significant for the really good, grand, wasn't he? grand slam winning team. Like he's a guy who coming out from St. Michael's a couple of years ago was kind of earmarked as someone who could be a, a real force potentially. It reminds me of Andrew Porter playing Lucid, maybe, you know, for the Ireland team in 2016, you know, but with, with only a year to go to a World Cup, he only just turned uh he only just turned 20 as well so like you know that's that's not really realistic to be fair to expect someone I've like seen, that I've seen uh, yeah I've seen a few people like he's like I was down at the 20s game on Sunday and he is definitely the the one you're looking at going like this guy is without a shadow of a doubt going to play for Ireland but I guess you'd be you'd be very wary wouldn't you of taking a guy that young and trying to fast track him because like god like in in a position like the front row Oh, Porter, fa- I, just, I just checked with Porter earlier, like, you know, Andrew Porter is Andrew Porter, whatever, but, like, he made his debut, like, right after, for, like, the season after for Leinster, so, like, it would be the equivalent of Boyle making his debut in September, then you have a year to the World Cup, Porter made his Ireland debut the following summer, so if you're just using him as a like-for-like comparison, it's not, like, completely unprecedented, and Porter it- ultimately ended up playing tighthead, which is probably more difficult, but... I, I think, like, I think when... With the context, it's still, yeah. it's still too soon, probably, but I'm just to give people no, listen a bit of context about the timelines no it, it's absolutely fair to point it out the one thing i would say is having covered andrew porter's year as well in 20s he definitely looked far more yeah. developed than oh, he was the, like olympic weightlifting yeah side, you know powerlifting side, and, yeah. and even to be fair so like keen healy was a freak when he was coming through yeah. with that age as well so i think jack boyle is an outstanding like prospect but yeah I think the Ireland coaches will be very wary of throwing a guy like that in because it could end up like ruining his career. And it's interesting that you mentioned um, Eric O'Sullivan and um, Ed Byrne. 
this is the issue. Andy Farrell has had a couple, like he, Jeremy Lockman has been in the squad for the last few weeks in the Six Nations. So the issue is that he's not sure who his, you know, next man is in, in Loosehead. And this is part of the, this is part of the problem. Yeah, well, there's so many interesting talking points around the Ireland situation alone, but I would like to discuss England with you uh, now, Eddie Jones. <laughs> it's been so interesting to read the English media the last couple of days. You know, the Telegraph, people in there calling for his head. The Times, people there calling for his head. The Sunday Times, the same. Like, I know that the statement that came out from the RFU backing him and, and citing progress in the second straight tournament, they've only won two out of five games, I think everyone thought was laughable. Like, what's your view on it? Do you think time is up for Eddie Jones? Um, like, there's been zero progress that I've seen in this six nations. Like, people have compared it to 2018 when he bounced back. But in, in 2018, I got the sense that it was a good team playing badly. Like, they still had that core group of guys, you know, the Saracens lads and other fellas like that. And they bounced back in 2019 with getting maybe two laggy back and one or two others from injury. Whereas this time, the team selections have been so muddled. I think the tight five was probably the only place he actually knows his best team. And he's had five different back rows, a number of different center comfort. Com- uh, combinations in this tournament like what's your take on it well they don't have an identity do they like when you're watching this England team you're just not sure what they're about how they're going to play and we've spoken about Ireland how you know how easy it is to recognize their attacking shape and England just don't have that at all and I think it's been interesting that they've got you know Martin Gleeson has come in obviously he was with Wasps but he's got a rugby league background and I haven't seen too many. You could, you are definitely the one to correct me if I'm wrong here, Will. But I haven't seen too many rugby league converts come over and be attack coaches. Whatever about Andy Farrell, Sean Edwards coming in and being defence. But has there been any or many like attack coaches have come from league and actually been a success? No one's coming to mind off the top of my head. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, putting putting you on the putting you on the spot there. But yeah. That, but that's my point. There is like it just seems like a strange, strange kind of way to go about it. Now I know Eddie Jones has a massive say over the attack as well, but it's really not firing at all. And you think of like how well like Marcus Smith has been playing for Harlequins week in, week out. And like, I personally didn't, I, I, I've i seen a few people putting them in there. Did I see it? someone had them in the team of the tournament? And I just haven't seen like him at all. And I, I've, I've seen enough for Harlequins to know how good this guy is, but I just didn't think that he had the system around him at all no, to flourish. He didn't, and like he didn't have a great tournament. Like even, even like he, he was asked to kick, obviously an awful lot. But like even at the weekend, he kicked very poorly. I thought against France as well. Even his attacking kicks, which is the strength of his, like it, it, for Harlequins, like the amount of tries they get from those little cross kicks, like his attempts at that even were just they weren't on the same wavelength with his other players. Like I know it's. It, it was never going to be him stepping up to England and playing the exact way he does with mm-hmm. Harlequins and, and having the same effect. That's just not realistic. The, the step up is just too strong for that. But yeah, was he given the the, the best kind of tools around to succeed? Like I know they were missing their their, their ideal starting centre partnership. Both got injured on the eve of the tournament, so it would have been a different combination there. But yeah, it, it, it was just... I just thought Eddie Jones had an atrocious tournament. I, I really did. Like, I just thought his team selections, as I said, there was so much chopping and changing. Like, when he says that they're only 3% off, it's kind of like, on one hand, you're like, that's actually small. But a top-level sport, 3% is huge. Like, you know, three. Mm-hmm. I think he probably meant it in, oh, we're small bit away. But it actually, in my head, I was like, Clive Woodward used to say, oh, it's a 0.1%, you know, and now Jones is saying it's 3%. Like, that, that that's could be... A, that's like the Grand Canyon, like a, a top-level sport. Yeah, no, it, it absolutely is. And it's been interesting, like you said, to listen to the reaction and stuff of the English media, because like I've been speaking to a few of them, particularly after the 
the England week when Ireland played them because they were just so curious from someone from the outside. Like a couple of them were on to me like, oh, what did you make of Eddie Jones? And it was the day he named the team and it was really, really fiery with a couple of the English lads. Um, so there is no doubt that their knives are sharp. What, what's he actually like in the press conference? Because, like, you know, I'm not, I've never, I haven't been in on one. I've only been reading and seeing his quotes. But like, are they, are they good kind of back and forth? Is he really kind of going like head to head with them? Yeah, like they, they really are. Um, there, there's no shortage of of fire exchanges, and I think, like when I was covering him uh, two weeks ago, like I enjoy it because like you go in, you almost like have kind of a front row seat to see like how pissed off basically the English journalists are, and you can tell it's not because of how he's acting now; it's because they've had years and years of dealing with this, and that's how tiresome it gets. And I think that's probably reflecting in the fans as well because patience is running thin and you mentioned the the statement that the RFU um released and I couldn't help but think that if this was football like that's the dreaded show of faith or show of confidence and that in a couple of weeks that like the manager is going to be sacked it doesn't seem like that is going to happen but like the only like one of the only nations you could compare the resources that England have is South Africa and if you look at what, what Rassi Erasmus did when he came in with 18 months to go for a World Cup and turned the whole thing around. So if you were in the RFU, would you be sitting down going, they, they, first of all, they would have to have obviously a ready-made replacement, which Rassi Erasmus couldn't wait to get out of Munster quick enough as soon as the Springboks um, came up. But if you were the RFU, like you'd probably look at that and go, could we could we do something similar here as what South Africa did? Yeah, it's an interesting one. Like obviously a lot of people are jumping to the South African example. You know, they won the World Cup after Erasmus coming in two years before. Michael Checker came in an even shorter notice in 2014 after Ewan McKenzie was sacked, got them to the World Cup final. But in both of those cases, like Erasmus ended up using the vast majority of the players who were like if you look at the squad that were were hammered by Ireland by like 35 points. The vast majority of the people in that 23 would like form the cohort of his team. It's not, he didn't like unearth a load of new players. Whereas this England team, a new coach would have to kind of shape a completely new team. Similarly, Michael Check kind of took what was there, brought back Macchio back in as a, as a 12, which was obviously a masterstroke. But I feel like a, a new England coach would have to do a lot more work, I think. It wouldn't just be like kind of rebuilding the psyche or rebuilding the confidence, maybe like in some of these other cases. This would require a wholesale, you know, rebuild. But I, I do think there's a lot of good coaches. Like, you know, Warren Gatland's been mentioned. I'd say he'd love the chance to come in with 18 months to take a, an England team to a World Cup. There's loads of good coaches in the Premiership who are English. Rob Baxter, Steve Bortwick, whether they'd want it, I don't know. But I don't think there's a lack of options. I, I, I actually probably honestly would keep faith with him. Like, he, ha, like he has proven before that he can get a ride at a World Cup, you know, this time does seem to be a lot, like you know worse than, than the previous times as I mentioned earlier, 2018, a little different. But I actually think I probably would keep faith with him. I, I think he has enough credit in the bank. I don't know if I'm mis- no, I agree. I agree yeah. with you for what for what it's worth. I, I agree with you. I think you would back him to turn it around. But can you imagine being an England fan or if this was Ireland and like you were basically just sacking off six nations? Like that, that is just joyless, absolutely joyless experiences. Now England fans could argue, well, we got to the World Cup final. Granted, they didn't win it, but like that semi-final performance against the All Blacks was one of the great, great displays. Like, and it's really not that long ago. Like when you think about but it, the thing, but the, like you know, you look at that team who played that day. Who like Michael Vinopola mm. gone, Billy Vinopola gone, Farrell you know, Ford Farrell gone, George Ford gone, Watson gone, Johnny May gone. Daily on the bench, like so, like you know, uh, Tulagi gone, like so, like, that's like over fifty percent of the team 
you know, who who weren't involved for either through injury or who have just been dropped. Like so, like that that's the kind of the point we've been making on other podcasts. You know, you've been on a few of them that like he's gone away from that core. He's decided to rebuild it, but he doesn't have a clear idea. It seems about what he wants to rebuild it with. He's he's kind of mishing and mashing the old guys and the new guys. But do you think he should go back to it? No, I, I, I couldn't see him bringing back in the Vunapolos. I know Michael Vunapolo, I think, got an injury mm. recently, but uh, yeah. I think, and I know they're only two guys, but they were two iconic key guys in that pack. And I'm, I'll be fascinated to see when Farrell does get back fit, how he does mesh with Marcus Smith, because that does seem to be the way he wants to bring back that 10-12 axis, which ultimately under Eddie Jones, when they've played the best rugby, I know Luke isn't here tonight, but he, he goes mad when Farrell is at 12, but... England have had their best success under Eddie Jones with that 10-12 axis. They got to a World Cup final and they won two Six Nations with it. So it'll be fascinating to see when Farrell is back fit. And they're, they're also, big... sorry, oh, sorry, they're also like, I, I think, pinning way too many hopes on Manu Tuolagi. Obviously, when he's fit and firing, he's yeah. incredible. But like, like you'd have to wonder, is is that ever going to happen again, especially cons- over a consistent level of time? It's and, and like and also the, the sort of the flip side of that is that they're playing Henry Slade, I think, out of position. Like I think he's a class 13. But how are England in a position where they're kind of, you know, fiddling around trying to find centers? Like it's look at the resources that they have. Like, I mean, it's just it's incredible. Like we speak about the the Ireland prop depth chart, and like Ireland are only picking from from four teams. It's not that easy, but like you look at the the premiership and, and things like that. Like, I just find it amazing that they seem to be so short and it's the same at hooker. Like you saw Jamie George, how long he had to play last weekend because Eddie Jones just didn't trust the, the backups that he has. So I would agree with you. I think they will. I think they will stick with him, but I think they're, they're probably right because he could turn around from, for the world cup. And they do have a kind of a fairly handy enough draw, don't they? They do. Yeah. I, I, they have Argentina, I think are their big, you is know, it Wales or Australia in the quarter final? Yeah, they, 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 yeah. they, they play Wales or Australia in the quarter yeah. final. Like, so that like they'd be, they'll be they'd, even playing poorly. They'd be strong favorites mm. to get to a world cup semifinal. So like, it's not as if they have the Ireland draw where you're kind of, you'd be looking at being very, you know, anxious yeah. if, if this was your form line at, at, the, at this juncture. But yeah, it'd be fascinating to see that three test tour to Australia in the summer, how they get on. Cause that could make or break whether he, he gets kept on it. They have a tough November as well. I think South Africa and New Zealand are coming to Twickenham. So it's going to be, a, it's a huge, you know, next couple of months for him to see how he gets on. We, we might, before we finish up, touch on Scotland as well. You know, obviously they played Ireland at the weekend. You know, I'm, I'm sure you were in that press conference afterwards with Gregor Townsend and Stuart Hogg, where they were kind of, you know, putting a positive spin on another very heavy defeat to Ireland. You know, what did you make of that? The whole circus last week, you know, I found it astonishing that Stuart Hogg was still was, was starting that game, considering he was the captain and he was involved in, you know, the, the the breaking of the curfew or what have you. And I know he came and ultimately coming back, I think, and maybe Finn Russell went out anyway. But surely, as a head coach, you have to take a stand it, when your captain is the one who breaches breaches your trust like that. It, does it not come across as like you know you you just you, you don't really have the authority almost to, to you don't feel like you, you can you can take you can take him out of the team I, what did you make of that whole thing last week oh yeah like i absolutely agree with you and to make it worse then Stuart hogg you know does start and makes and does sorry does a Stuart hogg at the aviva stadium again and one of the worst pieces of play i'm sure if, if luke was here he would absolutely savage him as well as, as a back three player but like now incredible tackle it must be said by hugo keenan who had such a brilliant six nations but God, like when your captain is doing that, and I agree with you. Like, I mean, I like obviously this, there's something seriously up in that Scotland camp, and it's not the first time either. You think back to a couple of years ago, the 
the falling out that Finn Russell and Gregor Townsend had, which was pretty ended up being pretty public. So um, there's clearly something not right there at all. And, you know, you think like I was kind of thinking about this, like the, there was so much positivity about Scotland, which there tends to be at the start of a Six Nations, but particularly after the, but after the back of the Lions tour, when, you know, like Steve Tandy came in for rave reviews, Finn Russell was being kind of heralded as the man who showed that rugby isn't dead because, you know, you can still play ball and not play this boring rugby. And then they beat England and then all of a sudden, yeah, like like people are running, losing the run of themselves again. And it's the same old story. So, yeah, like this kind of goes back to my original point that when when you're thinking about how Ireland's campaign went, you kind of look at the other teams and you go, okay, well, we've just spoken about England and their crisis. We're just speaking about Scotland now and their crisis. And Italy then delivered the the moment of the Six Nations by beating by beating Wales, who were also in crisis. So you've got three of the six teams are in crisis. And even you look at the, like even the table, the, the finishing table, France in 25, Ireland on 21, and then third place, 10. Like that really, really yeah. sums up the, the kind of the gaps that were exist. As a lot of people have said, in a five-game tournament, that's a, that's a very significant gap. Because it's funny, you even go back to 2021, the Six Nations there, and, you know, the feeling coming out of it was, oh, wow, like five teams can compete. Wales won it against the head. France had some big wins. You know, they beat Ireland for the first time in the Aviva since 2011. Scotland beat England and France away. Ireland pumped England. Even England beat France at home in a really good performance. And you're thinking, oh, there are a lot of good teams here. And then here we are 12 months later. We have two teams that look, you know, France probably at the top and then Ireland a good bit ahead of the rest as well. I know things can change very quickly, but the standard across the board was what I thought was pretty, pretty Sorry, very poor besides France and Ireland. Yeah, like when you were when you're in it and you're co- especially when you're covering it, you don't really come up for air, if you know what I mean. Like you're just so yeah. head down and focused on it. But over the last couple of days, I think it's been because I've been actually I have a little bit more time to see what the other media and kind of supporters are saying. Like we said, you know, the English fallout, the Welsh fallout, the Scottish fallout, and you're kind of going, geez, like there's a lot of there's a lot of things going wrong here for teams, isn't there? That's why I think, you know, where no one is getting ahead of themselves about Ireland as well, while totally acknowledging how well they played. But three of their main rivals are in dire straits at the moment and almost having like proper existential crisis. Like, I don't think it's an exact exaggeration to say that about England, Scotland or Wales. So, um, yeah, I'd agree with you. It was, there was, there were still some brilliant games. And like I said, that moment, it was class actually, um, we were all watching the Italy-Wales game in the press room before the match. And obviously, like, the roar that went up in the room by the Scottish and Irish journalists when Italy scored that try was brilliant. But it was cool. Ian McKinley was there as well because he was working on TV. And he had just come over chatting to us before the game and, or sorry, during the game. And then, obviously, they scored a try. And just to sort of have seen the emotion in him as well, like, for a guy who had, you know, who's soldiered through a lot of those tough days, it was just really, really... You saw what it meant. Clearly, you saw what it meant. Uh, like the scenes of full time with Garbisi and stuff, where like that's what sports all about. Like, isn't it? Not to get too soppy about it, but like it was a proper, proper, brilliant, brilliant moment. And it was just really cool to kind of see what it meant to someone like Ian McKinley as well. So I think in the middle of it all, there were some brilliant games. Like I, th- I still think like that Ireland France game was was some game. I think you, you were obviously there as well. Like the atmosphere was just. It felt like a World Cup game, didn't it? Like it was just, it's such a big, big occasion. And you can see how much the public are buying into this French team as well. And yeah, you like know, 
even sorry, it's even having like just the first Six Nations since before COVID, or since you know, mm. obviously the first one was you know cut short halfway through in terms of the fans being there, and, and it, it was like obviously you were there working at the games. I, I was in Paris and London as a as a punter. Uh, it's obviously very different. Um, I, I, still equally as long a day, and probably more tough in many ways. But uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, no, the, the atmosphere was just unbelievable, and like you know, it, it just makes such a difference. It, it, it's funny when like. Because again, you were there. I was watching these behind closed doors games at home, but it does really color what happened behind closed doors in many ways. Even when you think back to last season, like Leinster had that great win in Exeter. You're like there was no fans there. Like Scotland won away to in Twickenham, Paris, but there was no fans there. It makes such a difference. Like when you see the cauldron, like even the first half in the side of France, like it took Ireland a while to get the grips with that atmosphere. And like likewise, the Twickenham atmosphere when England were coming back, it makes such a difference. And it's been such a welcome addition back like it, it's one thing when you're watching it on tv it doesn't really stick out as much you know but it's it's only when you actually get the re-experience that you remember how significant it is in deciding the outcome yeah and like that that applies to the players as well will because it was funny i was interviewing hugo keenan shortly after the the france game and the week that followed actually i think it was a down week if i, if I remember correctly um and he was reminding me that that was his first ireland game in front of a crowd which is nuts when you think like the, the number of games that he had played since then. So a lot of guys hadn't experienced anything like that. So while we're so delighted to have crowds back, obviously so are the players as well, but like it's been a bit of a baptism of fire, I guess. And they pretty much admitted that, but that was what was so impressive about the, the game in Paris because they fought their way back into it and were came up just short in the end. But just on France, um, it's funny, like I, I include myself in this and I, I think I think you were kind of on the same page as well, that everyone was going, oh, it'd be so good to have French rugby back. Like, like you know, rugby needs a strong France. And now you're kind of going, mm. OK, be careful what you wish for. Yeah. Because I, oh, yeah. I, I think I preferred when they were shit, actually. Yeah, I was actually saying we were, we were talking to someone at the weekend. It's like, yeah, I actually preferred when like Ireland would go there and we'd be like, oh, definitely winning this game. Like, And like, I think I was thinking about this again. Like, I think this this France team have another gear in them as well. Um, like I don't think they're the finished product at all here and I just thought the game last weekend was such a massive test for what's to come at the Home World Cup because we definitely got a taste for it at the Ireland game but having a Grand Slam on the line was at 9pm kickoff on a Saturday night that's what the World Cup is going to be like with the whole country buying into them so I thought if they had bottled it and hadn't won, like I thought like that would have said a really, no matter what happens between now and the World Cup, that game would have been in their mind that they bottled winning a Grand Slam against a poor England team. So the fact that they went and won it, I think is fairly ominous for, I don't think they're, like I said, they're not finished article and they definitely, I think, are beatable. But I think it was such a huge victory in their sort of journey towards the next year's World Cup. Oh, it was certainly a massive statement of intent, but you have to say over the course of the tournament, they were certainly worthy winners. And I really enjoyed that look back over the last couple of weeks. Keen, thanks so much for joining me. Cheers, Will. Enjoyed it. That's all we have time for this week on the left wing. We'll be back next week with another podcast reviewing all the weekend's action. In the meantime, you could subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or listen on independent.ie. So until next time, thanks for listening and goodbye.